Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. This is a little citizens from Alice Russell, Citizens United. Just come on together and let's do what we have to do. Thank you for joining me tonight again. I want to uh, just take a moment and pause and thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, like I do with every show. Uh, before we get started, I always like to uh, give him uh, honor for just allowing us to host this show, for allowing us to have this platform, because we understand and recognize that certainly... Um, it is not something that uh, uh, I want to take for granted or take lightly that uh, every time or any time I get on this airwaves that everything is going to, uh, you know, that everything is supposed to be there or everything's supposed to happen. But I want to thank God just for allowing it to be that that it is, because without him, we wouldn't have BPT. We wouldn't have Black Politics Today. We wouldn't have our magazine. And I wouldn't have my guests each and every week to come on this show to help us and enlighten us and give us some expertise from their perspective about exactly the, you know, what's going on in the world of politics, socially, economically, and politically. Uh, so what we try to do each and every week with this platform and with this show is we like to share with you what's at stake for us, socially, economically, and politically. And as many of you have watched this past week, uh, impeachment testimony has riveted this country, uh, especially the GOP. I mean, they're beside themselves. They don't know what to do. Many of the members are retiring, not seeking reelection. Uh, and then at the same time, those who are staying and they're still there, uh, they're trying to figure out how to respond to some of the acts and actions uh, that continue to be revealed 
through these testimonies, uh, not only the, the, the testimony behind closed doors, but even the testimony that's in public and what this administration, uh, with what this administration has done and how to actually react to it and what to do. Uh, so many of them um, have been dealing so corruptly that it is a way of life for them. And so many of these uh, elected officials now, they don't know what to do. So they're, they're just being complicit in, in saying, well, there's nothing here, here. There's no there, there. Or uh, as they say, well, yeah, he shouldn't have done it, but it's not impeachable. And yet, if I remember correctly, uh, these same Republicans, especially Lindsey Graham, uh, sought to impeach Bill Clinton for having an extramarital affair. They had nothing to do with national security like this does. It had nothing to do with holding up money like this does. It had nothing to do with uh, our person who's sitting in the White House asking a foreign government to investigate a political opponent. And yet they're trying to tell us, the American people, that what this man has done, there is no need to impeach him for it. We should just let it go. And yet, as you look at all the people that are associated with this clown, eight of them, I think, by now, it's either eight or nine, have been convicted or on, well, yeah, all of them been convicted. Roger Stone was the latest of, of, of the, the, the pawns to fall. Uh, he's now a convicted felon and will be sitting in federal prison for some time to come unless he's pardoned by this fool. And the corruption in this administration keeps coming and coming. It starts at the head and comes all the way down. And then we're going to look at this evening. We're also going to go into uh, Wednesday's debate, uh, Democratic debate, which actually uh, is going to be held at Tyler Perry's new uh, movie studios there in Atlanta, Georgia, with an all-woman panel. Uh, which would be very interesting. I think it's the first uh, that that's ever occurred and uh, should also be very pointed because I'm sure they're going to talk about a lot of the women's issues that have not come up. I'm hoping and thinking that they'll talk about a number of the issues dealing with people of color um, and the issues that we have to do with that. So joining me tonight uh, is none other than our our talented and and, uh, progressive political consultant, uh, my girl who's always on the on the ball and, and and ready for action anytime we call upon her, uh, Rebecca Carruthers. She is a progressive political consultant and attorney. Uh, she's been a lobbyist in the past and has worked on the Hill as well as in local and state government and uh, and operated political campaigns across the country. Uh, joining her tonight as well is another good friend of mine who has been uh, he's been out and about because he's a, a surrogate on one hand for. Uh, presidential uh, candidate, Senator Bernie Sanders. He's also a former Georgia state senator uh, and uh, there in Georgia and is also very um, active in Georgia politics. And I want to welcome him to the show as well, Vincent Fort, Senator Vincent Fort. Welcome to the show, Rebecca and Senator Fort. Good to be with you. Thanks for having us tonight. Uh, Well, you know, it's always a pleasure for me to have you guys on the show. Uh, and of course, Rebecca, you know, I always start with you to get to get this ball rolling and, and, and set the tone for the whole discussion of the evening. And it's been a minute since you've been here. So I want to uh, just have you look at what the the whole impeachment hearings have been all about and the reality of what's really going on. Because I know a lot of times you've been on the show, I've talked about the, the barber in Wisconsin 
who uh, we had on the show a number of years ago, who said that the reason he didn't vote in 2016 was because he didn't like his choices, but he kind of liked Donald Trump because he finally had a gangster in the White House. And uh, you you probably remember I would always call him out on that statement and that and that uh, uh, connotation. And now here we do literally have somebody who thinks they are a gangster in the White House. What are your thoughts and the damning testimony that has come out so far about Donald Trump and what he's done and what the people around him have done? And I mean, so many of them gone to jail. And now we're talking about different secretaries of state and and different secretaries of this administration just corrupting themselves and our body of government to do whatever this this man wants them to do. What, What are your thoughts about that? So I think it's very apparent um, in the impeachment hearings that that we've watched so far and looking and forecasting the impeachment hearings that we're going to see this week, that this president is corrupt, his administration is corrupt. My concern for the Democratic Party and with winning back the White House in 2020 is the language and the messaging that Democrats use to help voters connect the dots and understand why they should vote on this, why they should go to the ballot box and vote for the Democratic ticket. My concern is that Democrats are going to become so gleeful in what we're learning in these hearings that they're not going to be able to connect it to the everyday person, specifically in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Ohio, in Florida, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. And unless Democrats are able to do that, it doesn't even matter what comes out of these hearings. We already know that the House is probably going to vote to impeach Trump. We know that the Senate is going to have a trial, but we know that the Senate is very unlikely to vote for the actual removal of President Trump. While I do think it's important to proceed with the impeachment hearings, because for the record, the American public needs to know for the record everything that has gone on. And for our future discourse, we need to draw a line in the sand and say never again. We will never elect such a corrupt person, such an immoral um, character to, to lead our country. But once again, if Democrats aren't able to connect the dots with proper messaging, Trump right. will still get reelected next year. That That is the scary thought, and the messaging part is always an issue for Democrats, it seems like. Um, I, I mean, Clinton and and, and, and um, uh, Obama were able to, you know, come up and quantify a message um, for their campaigns, but certainly uh, Hillary was not, and a lot of times the messaging just from the party itself has been difficult. Senator, let me ask you, um, yes, as a Georgia voter— and a resident there in Georgia, and and seeing what you saw um, two years ago with Stacey Abrams and and uh, um, the Secretary of State there, former Secretary of State there, and and the the shenanigans that they pulled off there, and just seeing and listening to the the accounts of the quid pro quo, the bribery, the extortion, the abuse mm-hmm. of power, and the the uh, use of foreign government to investigate American citizens, how does it make you feel? Think I mean, given given what Rebecca was talking about, the messaging piece of it. But along with that, just looking at like what you had to experience there in Georgia, because there were some shenanigans going on there, and then thinking about that it's carried on on a national level, and what will Democrats do, and how will they be able to overcome, again, the messaging issue, but just the point of connecting the dots for the American people? 
Yeah, uh, I, you know, the Democratic Party oftentimes, I call it the worry party. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes we just need to take a breath and chill for a minute. Um, mm-hmm. Because what what has happened in the last few weeks, both in Kentucky and in Louisiana this past weekend, where right. Democrats were elected or reelected governor in the case of Louisiana mm-hmm. by an increased turnout of African-Americans. The numbers are really impressive that the black turnout in both Kentucky and Louisiana rose anywhere from 15 to 30%. And what that tells me is that African-American voters are energized. And uh, thus you had two Democratic governors elected, even with, Trump uh, flying in, in the case of Louisiana, I think he flew in three different times. So I am, you know, I just think we need to have a strategy. We need to have a message. um, And, uh, but we need to put energy into turning out African-American voters. I'm going to, in the next year, try to work as hard as I can turning out African-American men. Uh, for Democrats, but I think uh, the stage is set after 2018 and the takeover of the House, which, you know, 43 seats changed. Now these uh, elections in Kentucky and uh, Louisiana, I think the, the the stage is set if we continue to do what's necessary. And uh, I think Georgia uh, has uh, is is a prime uh, uh, situation. We have two open, well, one open and one contested, one other contested U.S. Senate race. So it's going to be on the front burner of politics along with the presidential race. Yeah, you guys got Purdue and... uh, um, Isaacson uh, is retiring. Johnny Isaacson is retiring. Right. And... So that's going to leave so, an open seat there, and uh, you got Purdue. He was running for re-election, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. correct. He tied his wagon to uh, Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and so uh, we've got some good uh, candidates uh, running against uh, Purdue, and then there's are several people contemplating uh, runs uh, for the open seat. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, this is going to be a uh, kind of a postlude for the governor's race in 2018. This is really going to be uh, a – it's going to show whether Georgia Democrats and national Democrats can take what we learned in eighteen. And all the chicanery with all the chicanery that went on then, mm-hmm. can we, you know, protect the ballot, stop suppression of the vote, and uh, make sure that every vote is counted? That's all we want. We don't want right uh, to count more votes. <laughs> right. We certainly don't want less votes. We just want what all votes counted in Georgia. So it's it's an exciting year. Uh, the next twelve months are going to be exciting on the national scene, but. Uh, especially so here in Georgia. So, Rebecca, um, 
thinking about the the, the idea of um, us moving forward to to, to twenty twenty and and not you know hanging our hat on on an impeachment of of Trump and certainly knowing and realizing that he's not likely to be removed unless some exculpatory evidence comes out that the Republicans just cannot turn away and look look at. Many of them are tying themselves in knots and don't really know what to do and, and how to respond because every time they say something doesn't happen, Nancy Pelosi goes in and gives them that that leash and then they turn code and, and, and come up with something different. Do you fear uh, that, I mean, you mentioned, you sort of kind of touched on it, but do you fear that even with that, that uh, even if they're successful at, at you know, impeaching and, and moving forward, that with the Republicans coming out and, and basically moving what we say, move the goalposts and changing the, the, um, the, the dialogue or the, the message, that it would be confusing to the American people and that ultimately they'll just give up and say, well, we don't really care. They just go back and reelect Trump anyway. So to the senator's point, especially looking at African-Americans and the importance that African-Americans play in the Democratic base, the Democrats are actually going to have to put their money where their mouth is. We always hear how important black voters are, but at the same time, we need to make sure that money is pouring into black communities, into black consultants, to messaging that touch and mobilizes black people, not just during GOTV, but starting, um, but starting um, even – starting at the point of the Iowa caucuses, we have to make sure that, that there is a, a concerted effort to get those black voters who showed up in 2008, some who came back in 2012, but did not come back in 2016, making sure right. that we're shoring up those voters. Um, but that said, my point earlier where I was mentioning that the Democratic Party can't just look at impeachment that's a surefire way of making sure that the Democrats take back the White House next year. Uh-huh. It's because talking to different consultants within the, you know, Mexico, D.C. Beltway, I still, still hear different consultants talking about the middle of the road um, voters, the independents, um, the blue-collar voters in the Rust Belt, i.e. white men, where right. we know only that, that white men only about 24 to 27% of white men who vote in presidential elections will actually vote for the Democratic nominee, regardless if that Democratic nominee is a white man or a black man or a white woman. So that said, the Democratic Party has to look at its base, the reliable base, and spend money and effort to turn out um, that reliable base to the senator's point. Something else the senator said that so important is that as a black woman, I know my other black sisters, we're going to come out and we're going to do our thing. We know mm-hmm. how to vote and we know how to vote often. I am concerned with Trump's targeting of black men, especially on social media. I've been seeing right. an uptick in the analytics that Facebook has put out that has been black men who are Gen Xers, so between the ages of what, 40 and 55 some who have served in the military, some who live in more conservative areas. And the push it, that I see the Trump campaign using is to try to get these black men disenchanted with the process 
and throw out, you know, how our system is corrupt. It's not working for black men, which is, which is valid and which is true. But what we're seeing that the Trump campaign is doing, they're not turning the corner and saying, and this is how we're going to fix it. Instead, they're trying to get black men to become disillusioned and stay home. Or right. try to get yep. black men to fear that the Democratic Party is going to be worse for them than the Republican Party. Yeah, and that's why what uh, uh, our sister is saying is so critical in terms of putting the Democrats putting their money where their mouth is. We have to go if we're going to offset the Trump uh, pandering and try to suppress the black male vote. We have to put money into going to where black men are, going to the barbershops, going to the pool halls, going wherever black men uh, are. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And, you know, it can't be a 35,000 foot uh, kind of targeting. It has to be face to face, block by block barbershop by barbershop along with the beauty salons and uh, because I'm uh, you know what's going to happen what is happening I think some of what is being referred to is the same type of voter suppression that went on in 2016 but it's going to go to even a higher level Uh, and I I, you know and we are told uh, that uh, the Soviet suppression of the, of uh, or intervention, I'm not going to call it meddling, intervention in uh, the 2020 election has already begun. And you right. can bet that that intervention is going to include just what the sister said, trying to discourage black men from voting, you know, trying to keep them from going to the ballot, uh, so I just think it's important that we use all the resources, uh, the micro-targeting of black men uh, in making sure – I mean, l- let me just put it in a kind of truism. If black men voted at the same rate that black women voted, this this would be over already. It would be the rap. You understand yeah, what it would be the rap. It would be a rap. Absolutely. Uh, Stacey Abrams <laughs> would – Stacey Abrams right. would have been governor. Right. Uh, Donald Trump and Andrew would have been. And Andrew, Andrew Gillum would have been governor. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is. Yeah. If black men had voted at the same rate in Miss uh, Wisconsin, uh, Ohio, help me out now, Pennsylvania. Yeah. It'd been it, Wisconsin. It would have been. I mean, it was. Yeah, we're Wisconsin. talking about eleven thousand votes in 11, Wisconsin yeah. and uh, 60, uh, 40, 13, 30, 13,000 in in Michigan, or, uh, and I think what was it, uh, six or, or twenty thousand in Pennsylvania. I mean, you're talking about Philly, yeah. Milwaukee, and Detroit, and uh, or yeah, Michigan. Michigan, um, Michigan you know, literally needed three more votes per voting precinct to go to Hillary. So That's if there's it. even an initiative to get three more black men to show up to every voting precinct. Absolutely. You know, it's and to your point, this has to be a this has to be led by black men. As a black woman, it can't be led by me. It can't be led by white women. It can't be led by white men. 
it has to be led by blackness. Let me, it really let me does. Story. It really does, Senator. Um, and yeah. it's one of those me, things where me. it just bothers me that our brothers don't get it and don't react. Their response is more apt to, oh, I don't deal with that. I don't need that. But yet they are the number one target as a result of that because yeah. uh, uh, judicially, yeah. they're going to be the ones that are going to spend the longer times in prison. They're going to have the Absolutely. least representation in prison. They don't realize and recognize that they can be voting out judges that sent their brother or their cousin to jail or prison because of the county local yeah. elections. They Absolutely. pay no attention to Absolutely. those things, but yet they don't want to even participate in it. And then when they do participate, they participate in what would seem be the wrong side of the participation lever to go with the people who are doing the same thing that they're complaining about. And they're going out well, there saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's why it's so important in that time at the barbershop talking to brothers. You've got to talk to them face-to-face, talk about the issues. Give me 10 minutes in the barbershop, Kelly. Yeah. Give me 10 minutes in the barbershop or at the – I'll never forget in 2008 uh, at the car repair place on Camelton Road in Atlanta, Georgia, southwest Atlanta. If y'all know Atlanta, you know what that is. That's 95% black. (laughs) I went into the the, uh, car repair shop, and the mechanic said, I've never voted before, but I'm going to vote this time. Because I got something to vote for. I'm sure he voted in 2012. Did he he vote in 2016? There's a very good chance he did not. What we have to do is go to those tire shops in southwest Atlanta and in Philly. We got to go to those barbershops, as I said, and spend FaceTime. This is not something you can do on Facebook. Right. Or right. Twitter. Exactly. As much as I appreciate the use of those vehicles to reach people, we've got to put a all all points bulletin, so to speak, for brothers in twenty twenty. And we've got to turn out more black women. Uh we've got to use we've got to do that, continue to do that. But the uh we've got to make sure that black men understand one that Trump is a threat, an ongoing threat, and uh, and then two, we have got to uh, make sure that after they understand understand how much of a threat he is, that we give them the ability, the means to go vote and uh, and be encouraged. Whether it, you know, we black radio is a vehicle. Uh, that we ought to be using, but there's nothing like that face-to-face contact, brother-to-brother, uh, uh, that helps to turn out black men to vote. It, it, we need to do that, uh, Senator, and unfortunately, there there's never a campaign for the black men. Now, you can go to the DNC or anywhere else, and there's always a, a women's vote coalition. There's always been reaching the black women, reaching the black women. And I don't know if their thought process is that if you reach a black woman, you're going to get a black man to go along with it. 
or what, but there has never been we a know concerted better. effort. Right. There's never been a concerted effort of just trying to reach black men, especially with the fall off in 2016 uh, that you that we had. Even in 2018, you didn't get them back. So there has to be a concerted mm-hmm. effort in 2020 to be able to do so. Let me uh, let me ask you this and, and, and talk about it from a uh, presidential standpoint and, and your candidate, sure. Bernie Sanders. Um, if you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 202, not 202, you can give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. But from, this, from the standpoint of uh, Senator Sanders, um, uh, Senator yes. Ford, uh-huh. what is he doing and, and how, what should African Americans know about Senator Sanders that they don't already know for the reason why they should support him? and the effort and what, you, what you're doing and, and why you're a surrogate for him? Well, one, you know, the policies that he uh, has been espousing for most of his career have been taken up by the other uh, candidates. Many of the other candidates uh, have listened uh, to what he has to say, and they've adopted his policies. But, you know, I guess imitation is the greatest form of flattery is a uh, old saying and it's true here but the thing about uh, Senator Sanders is that he came to these ideas uh, a long time ago he's maintained them and uh, he's a movement uh, politician what I mean by that he's kind of like me he knows that move that Policy change doesn't come from the top down. It doesn't come from politicians. It comes from the grassroots up. It comes from the people, uh, and that's why uh, I I remember, and some people have forgotten, after the 2016 election, uh, there were three main movements that came out of the resistance to Donald Trump. One was the Me Too movement, the women's movement. The second was the immigration movement i remember being at atlanta hartfield uh uh airport with uh on that immigrant issue within 24 hours 5000 people were at atlanta airport but the third one was the resistance to uh the trump attack on obamacare and when the dnc wanted somebody to organize in the streets they called who bernie sanders all of those Obamacare uh, rallies were done through the infrastructure that Bernie Sanders put together during the 2016 campaign. I'm for Bernie because he's a movement Democrat who – it's a movement Democrat who you can be best uh, assured is going to implement the things he's saying when he's get elected when he gets elected. I respect uh, all the other candidates uh, in the race, uh, but Bernie Sanders was there first, and I think uh, knowing him and knowing how politics works, he's most likely, when push comes to shove after he gets elected, to uh, he's more likely to implement his policies, proposals. So Rebecca, I mean, we we've talked about Senator Sanders here on, especially during the 2016 um, um, election when uh, 
we did our show a number of times and given what the senator just said, um, how do you see Sanders appeal to the black community? Where, where do you see his his appeal or non-appeal to to the black community? And given that the Senator Ford is looking at it from a movement standpoint, and a lot of times African-Americans, our civil rights movements and things that we've done have been movements whenever we've gotten involved in things. How do you see that um, in a sense of what the senator is saying and what you think or how you see uh, Senator Sanders' candidacy in our community? So um, to answer that, I'm going to answer that in three buckets. So uh, there's three conversations that's going on, and it's going on across uh, across um, black folks and white folks. The conversations that I hear, I hear some candidates and some voters talking about issues, like, for example, gun control. And then I hear some candidates and some voters talking about systemic things, such as, you know, reforming health care, um, reforming um, campaign finance, reforming how Wall Street does business, right? You know, those are more, you know, the systemic changes. And then I hear other people talking about the foundational things, saying, you know, should our democracy continue to exist the way it exists now? Do we need to make radical changes in our Constitution, i.e. getting rid of the electoral college system? And so it's also generationally where it impacts black voters, specifically um, black voters under 35 were enthused about Bernie Sanders in 2016, and to some extent, um, they're enthused for Bernie Sanders um, for 2020. I have noticed that there has been a drop-off in that under 35. Their enthusiasm for Bernie isn't as great this go-around as it was last go-around. But one thing that I noticed, especially um, what some black men earlier I was talking about, the Gen X, more conservative black men, I've right. heard black men, um, particularly in the Midwest and the South, being pro-Bernie because Bernie's message of systemic change is a message that has taken um, – that, that's catching fire because Bernie Sanders, even the language that he's using, he's acknowledging that our system isn't working for everybody mm-hmm. and that our yeah. system um, is failing whole swaths of people. And I think that really impacts black men. I think where we're seeing black women not quite going there with Bernie is that Bernie isn't as explicit in his language when he's talking about black issues. His his default is to talk about class issues and talk about from the lens of class. And as a black woman, I need to hear him talk about how class and race intersects together and that there are unique things that black poor deal with that white poor do not deal with, even mm-hmm. black poor in, in um, rural areas versus white poor in rural areas. And if Bernie mm-hmm. could turn that corner, I think he would have an uptick in support from black women. Yeah. Let, let, let me let me let me get in on this because ahead, I agree I agree uh, with the fact that the uh, there's a generational split with Bernie in the black community. Older African Americans tend to be like go for Biden in 16, and this go around 
younger African-American voters are going with Bernie. Uh, so, uh, and I have not seen those numbers uh, that were referred to about how Bernie's numbers among younger African-Americans uh, dipped. He's going to have a rally in Atlanta at Morehouse College on Thursday. So it'll be interesting to see what the turnout is and how that goes. But mm-hmm. um, where I disagree, and I this is something that I've given a lot of time to thought about. A uh, There was a great, in 2017, a great article in the Huffington Post by Daniel Moran on this issue about whether Bernie uh, synthesizes uh, race and class. You know, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> you know, this issue of race and class has been something I've dealt with as a teacher, as an elected official, and as an activist. And I'll just say this. I, You know, I think the idea that Bernie Sanders doesn't get it, that he's focuses too much on class is just not true. I mean, one, I mean, there was, no, you know, no candidate in 2016 and since who, for example, has a better understanding of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and police uh, brutality, uh, you know, the thing that Bernie Sanders has said about uh, uh, the uh, uh, marijuana and need to decriminalize or legalize because that's kind of the gateway to mass incarceration. Nobody, I think, in, in certainly not Joe Biden, certainly not Bo- Pete Buttigieg, uh, who's, you know, uh, situation with his police killing African American men, or uh, in uh, South Bend, uh, or uh, you know, none of them, and including Elizabeth Warren, has talked truth to power about how African Americans have a distinctive and unique position in the politics of this country. So that's where I really disagree. It's been a source of consternation with me uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, that this knock on Bernie Sanders is that he doesn't get black issues. He gets black issues better than anybody who's running. I mean, uh, you know, uh, and he, he's not beholden to wall street, the same wall street, that stole black homes during the uh, predatory lending crisis and the housing meltdown. He doesn't take any money. Uh, and that's one of my, I'll tell you, that's one of my criteria. If you take so let me, money let me, from so Wall me, Street uh, or the bank, you're collaborating with the people who stole the black economy. Right. I, well, that part I do agree with, but let me push back on you a little bit. And although it sure. wasn't 2016, it was here recently. Do you not feel that maybe Cory Booker has an understanding of like the Black Lives Matter dealing with his situation as mayor in Newark and having to deal with living in the projects and how he came up uh, and some of the you know, aspects I, of what he did um, as a mayor and, and being the young guy that I mean lived in the projects, not only while he was running for mayor, but as mayor 
so that he can turn that whole community around and dealing with issues. Now, I, I get where Bernie's coming from, but I think a lot mm-hmm. of times with Bernie is that I, I, it may not be that he doesn't necessarily understand it, but I think it's the articulation of it that he can actually be compassionate or, or uh, you know how we are in our community. It was something that I heard Al Sharpton say today. It's like, when you come to our church, when you come to our church, it, it, whether you've been there before or not, there's a certain feel and flow that we kind of look for you mm-hmm. when you come in our church that we can embrace you with. And if you don't really have yeah. that, it's hard for us to embrace you because you can say the words, yeah. but we don't know that you really understand. And I hear what yeah. you're saying. You're saying that, no, he understands it. He gets it. But is it that he may understand it and get it, but can't necessarily articulate it in our community? Because a lot of times when he comes, I know I've seen him a couple of times on the on uh, different platforms where he begins to, I think it was the women's thing in Houston, where he seemed to sort of stutter and stammer and they sort of like didn't receive him. It wasn't that he didn't know what he was saying or where it was, but is he uncomfortable in those settings and just not able to articulate it? Or is it that he's just disconnected? Because you're saying he's connected. Wow. I think Rebecca's yeah. saying I mean, that he, he's sensitized to it. But then other ways, it may be that he gets it because he's been around for so long, but is he comfortable in those communities yeah. where he can actually uh-huh. flow with us, is, as we say, he can flow with us and be with us and actually be able to, like, help us see where he's coming from and feel where he's coming from. Because you know how we are. We black folks. We need to feel it. Yeah. We can't just hear it. We need to be able to know yeah. you're real with it. And you got to be like, as we say, we got to be down with it and know that it's going to flow and what you're saying is what you're going to do. And I think, and I'm, my question to you is, do you not feel Cory sure. Booker, if on that platform, on that stage, could not articulate that or say, express those same feelings or that same um, assessment of what uh, you were saying about Bernie? Well, let me, let me just say this. I was in September of 2017 – Bernie Sanders came to Atlanta to St. Philip's AME Church, two or 3,000 people, half African-American, half white. Uh, Bernie Sanders connected. He connected on a serious level. And one of the things, you know, about connect, black folk connecting emotionally, that is very true. But the mm-hmm. thing that I think we sometimes forget is that black voters are very astute. They're very astute beyond the emotional. They're very astute. They are able to discern intellectually who's for real and whose policies aren't for real. Absolutely. And that's why I think black millennials, you know, gravitate toward him. Now, Cory Booker, uh, you know, uh, I give him his props for living in the neighborhood, living in the community. Uh, But at the same time, there's a reason why our communities uh, are underdeveloped in the way that they are in many instances. And that's because of how Wall Street has exploited their, these communities. And, mm-hmm. you know, Cory Booker has, you know, he is, yeah, you they, know, they won't let, uh, they won't let hedge fund, uh, development he's go at Wall there. Street. Yeah. He's taken so much money from Wall Street and from hedge fund managers. I'm just concerned that while he may live in the community, and I give him all all the props in the world for that, 
by taking money from Wall Street, it shows he doesn't understand or doesn't care how our neighborhoods got that way. And, the, you know, Wall Street, hedge fund managers, uh, banks, mortgage companies, real estate companies did the greatest reverse Robin Hood in the history of this country, taking money out of our neighborhoods and getting rips on it. So, um, so I, I, I respect uh, Brother Booker for living in the neighborhood, but at the same time, he needs to give some thought as how those neighborhoods became the rough neighborhoods that they are. I, I'm, I'm supporting Bernie. I'm going to support whoever the nominee is because whatever nominee there is is going to be 499 times better than the other choice. Yeah, we can but all for right now. That. Yeah, for right now, uh, you know, I just I think we need to back off this thing about Bernie puts class before race uh, because I've been around a long time seeing politicians black and white talk about race and class and no one is able to articulate the intersection uh, between race and class better than Bernie Sanders uh, in his programs and in his in, uh, in his approach to politics. If you want to join the conversations, give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 596, excuse me, 516-590-0143. So, Rebecca, given what the senator is saying, he's, he, he's uh, of course, he's a surrogate. So I'm, I'm, I'm letting him, you know, surrogate for, for Bernie and, and go out there. Thinking about what he's saying in terms of uh, hedge funders and, and uh, Wall Street, uh, Deval Patrick announced that he's going to, you know, stick his pinky toe in and, and start exploring and looking about racing, uh, um, uh, running uh, as well. And he's coming from Bain Capital, you know, uh, and many of us are familiar with Bain Capital being where Mitt Romney was and uh, starting out and he's coming out. And he's saying that even though he's in that space, he's in that space for the exact reason what uh, Senator Ford is saying is out there to develop the communities and which black and brown people live and giving them an understanding of how capitalism can work within our community. What do you think about that um, in terms of Deval Patrick jumping in the race, coming from a hedge funder uh, type of, of corporation, but then also what, what the Senator is saying about Bernie being the, 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 the prominent member of the, of the race out there to know how and what is necessary and needed for uh, for our communities. Um, well, really quickly about uh, for Deval Patrick, he's not he's not a factor. He's not going to be a factor. Just, he doesn't have uh, the difference between him and Mayor Bloomberg getting in is that Mayor Bloomberg has every town, and he's also spent um, the last few years giving millions of dollars away to different mayors which is one of the reasons when we saw that Bloomberg was jumping in the race, we saw um, different mayors, current and past, retweet that he was getting into the race um, because of that connection. So Bloomberg actually has an infrastructure. Uh, Duvall does not. 
um, pardon me, Governor, uh, Governor Patrick does not. Um, right. If he wanted to run as a, you know, I'm a Democrat that um, that plays nice with Wall Street, well, that's Cory Booker. If he wants to run as I'm a Democrat who's a moderate, well, that's where Joe Biden um, has positioned himself, ironically. And it's also where Klobuchar and Buttigieg has put the, put themselves in. If he wants, if Governor Patrick wants to run as a, hey, I'm a Northeast guy, well, that's Elizabeth Warren, and that's um, Bernie Sanders, Sanders as right. well. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I just don't see where he gains traction, and at this point, it doesn't even matter. But I want to get back to the Sanders comment about Bernie Sanders. My first response, if Bernie Sanders is the best that we got with dealing with race and class and how it intersects in the United States, Democrats are in trouble. <laughs> That's my first response. Because the thing with, um, with Senator Sanders, he, his surrogates might articulate um, where he's at when it comes to black issues, but the senator himself, when you press him, like when he initially says his statement, and then you do the secondary press and then the tertiary press, he 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 stumbles somewhat. And just listening to him, I just can't wrap my I, I I just can't go there with him. And even in 2016, listening to him, listening him talk about systemic change and the need for that change, where um, Secretary Clinton wasn't articulating those points that way. You know, it I wanted to go towards Bernie, but each time I leaned to go towards Bernie, then he said something that to me was tone deaf. And I wish it wasn't true. Even if the senator has great ideas and shared experiences that make some good for black folks on specific black issues, you know, I, I wish but the thing about Senator Sanders, just talking about legalization of marijuana or, or um, reducing sentences uh, for those who have been convicted of marijuana, that's not enough for me. When I think as a black person in America, what I want to hear is specifically what are – don't just tell me about $15 an hour job or a livable wage, but I actually want to own something. I think even black men feel that way too. We want to own our piece of the American dream. So we know that there's been specific barriers to black people in this country to have access to capital, to build wealth. So I want to hear specific plans to give black people the access to capital that their white that our white counterparts have. And that's what I'm waiting to hear from Bernie and I don't hear that. As much as I wish yeah. it was so, I don't hear that from them. Yeah. And so one, let me, one so of the let things, me ask you this, yeah. uh, Senator. Let me ask you this because mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is the the pushback on on Senator Sanders is that um, he's you know he's certainly talking about um, uh, the billionaire class and what he doesn't mm-hmm. want in terms mm-hmm. of how to address those issues. Um, and I think uh, a lot of times he doesn't dig down deep into the, 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 the uh, policy of how he's going to necessarily do what he's going to do uh, with the exception of Medicare for all and things of that nature. How wow. does he get past, how does he, how does he generate or gravitate to our community so that we can help him and support him in terms of getting the nomination? So in, in other words, 
going to be his pathway to our community to get the nomination because we all know he can't and no one can win the the the, the nomination um, on, on the primary Democratic side without the African-American vote and the black women yeah. and certainly yeah. the black yeah. men to chime in. So what does he do? Yeah. How does he how does he get us yeah. there and articulate that for us? Well, one of the things that he has to do is keep articulating how his policies are going to affect African-Americans as well as other people. We know that the people who are going to be most affected by Medicare for all are going to be African-Americans. I mean, uh, and that's the truth of the matter. People of color, black and brown in particular, are those people, well, in Native Americans as well, are those people who suffer from having a lack of health care more than anyone else. And African Americans know that, realize that. The best politics, Maynard Jackson and Harold Washington used to say, the best politics is the best policy. Articulating, and he, you know, and I, although I will say, I think some of the uh, uh, attacks on uh, Senator Sanders are strategic. Uh, you know, uh, I think there's a Never Sanders group out here. Uh, you know, and I, I've, uh, we know that the wounds of 2016 have not healed for some people, and that's fine. But, you know, we as elected officials, as candidates, and as activists have to keep persisting with the best policy arguments. Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. has the best policy argument, Uh, Medicare for all, free public college, uh, 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 dismantling, mass incarceration and private prisons and you know in his proposals are as specific on those issues as anyone uh you know uh i have a profound respect for elizabeth warren because she's a teacher i'm a teacher so i have a inordinate amount of respect for her. at the same time uh she's someone uh, who comes from the ivory tower, uh, Bernie Sanders comes from the movement and I'll go with the movement every, every time. But I just think that there's a, a campaign, you know, I, I, I don't know how many hoops Senator Sanders has to jump through, uh, in order to be considered, uh, acceptable, but I, I think it's strategic. I think there are people coming from 2016 who are still upset uh, for whatever reason about him daring to run for uh, the Democratic nomination in 2016. Actually, I think uh, he he brought out a lot in 2016. He certainly exposed uh, Hillary's flaws and her uh, inability to, at the same time, articulate a message and, and really focus on what it was that she was looking to do. Um, mm-hmm. I think um, I think there is some some backlash and some residue, and I think that residue is because it, after the it was clear that Hillary was going to win, he wouldn't drop out and he was moving forward. I personally, and I, I'll be very candid, I told I told my audience and I told him, I said, 
the issue was is that Bernie ran as an independent, was unwilling to register, re-register as a Democrat, seeking the Democratic nomination, and I don't think that the party was going to let an outsider, if you will, even though he caucused with Democrats and things like that because of what Trump had done, I don't think they were willing to allow someone to come in to basically take over the party who wasn't willing to register as a Democrat. However, well, he ran as a Democrat, Kelly. He right, he did run as a Democrat, but he right, he did, but he wouldn't re-register. So I'm just saying, I'm think I'm talking about what my opinion is about the party, um, not me personally. Right. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that the party was like, we want Hillary, and it's her time. And so we're going to accept Hillary. Now, the grassroots of the party was like, we don't want Hillary. We want somebody different. And I think they gravitated and launched and, and latched on to uh, Senator Sanders because of what he was talking about, because a lot of the millennials were looking at, yes, tuition costs. They were looking at jobs and how am I going to be able to work and, and live. And, and, you know, lo- those who had graduated had so much college debt. So everything that he was articulating was right up their alley, and it was a perfect, uh, I'll, I'll use the word storm, perfect storm for him to get in. What do you see, and how do you see um, his pathway on the general side? Because most folks not knowing socialism and believing that socialists is just going to you know, basically rob from the rich, give to the poor, or try to make everything free. What do you see or think uh, is going to be his uh, ability to move forward and getting to that general election and being able to win that nomination on that that end? Yeah, one of the things that uh, he will need to do is continue to make the point of Medicare for all. The fact is that every country in the Western industrialized world has universal health care except for one, the United States, Canada, Great Britain, France. Finland, Norway, Sweden. It, it, it's you We're know sure. everybody. Everybody ought to have the same health insurance that Senator Ford has, that you have, Kelly, that Joe Biden has, Elizabeth Warren has. Be able to walk in the doctor's office and get treated and not get turned away. Uh, be able to go get their medicine at the drugstore and not be turned away. So when. Bernie Sanders explains it in that way, you know, it's successful. The, you know, billionaires and millionaires, hedge fund managers always are going to, you know, Bill Gates or uh, Bloomberg or Howard Schultz are always going to recoil at the notion of a Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren. The best, I'll repeat, the best policies, the best politics you know, uh, but Bernie just has to keep hitting where he's, uh, you know, the same notes. Now he was, you know, uh, we don't know what's going to happen in Iowa and New Hampshire, the right. place that Bernie is strongest amongst, uh, is Nevada where the unions and Latino voters are very strong. Uh, this is, there's a very good chance this is going to go all the way to convention. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, you know, and I really wish Democrats would change the order, you know, of uh, their caucus and primary. I mean, it ought to be South Carolina first in the whitest states 
couple of the widest states, New Hampshire and Iowa, ought to go. I mean, the Democratic Party is a blacker and browner party than it's ever been. And so I think uh, Super Tuesday is going to be uh, a, uh, a big deal. Uh, but I don't, I think, uh, you know, California, uh, you know, has moved up uh, their primary, I believe. So this is going to be a, uh, a knockdown drag out for a long time through to the convention. I think so as well. I think it's going to uh, go to the convention because many of them will still have cash on hand and they're going to be able to go through Super Tuesday. And then once they, I think Super Tuesday will knock the majority of the people out and we're probably down to one or well, probably about two or three at that point. Uh, it just depends on who has the money left. So Rebecca, uh, one of the things, and and, and, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, get to our point here is um, that general election issue of you know Bernie or even Elizabeth Warren they they're the two who everyone seems to attack uh on the side of of um uh socialism or things like that um and and what they seem to stand for because they're you know hitting the rich or or you know saying you know we're going to get everything out for free and people are concerned or or curious about that poll suggests that any of the top candidates from Bernie to Elizabeth to Buttigieg to Kamala to Biden, even um, I think um, uh, uh, Kobashaw um, will all beat Trump in, in the, in a general election. But some of them are looking at the individual states and saying that, you know, in the individual states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Florida, a place like that, it's a little bit tighter. What do you think will be the impact of a Sanders general election bid if it comes down to that in those states and, and where, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a purple state, not just a blue state. So if Sanders is the Democratic nominee, he could beat Trump because he's talking about those, um, he's talking at a systems level. Any Democratic candidate that's just up there talking about issues against Trump, they're missing the ball because the American public isn't interested in issues of cycle. They're interested in the system. How are you looking to change the system? What elements of our system needs to be changed? So this is another transformational year. The reason why Trump was elected, when you go back and look at some of those exit interviews, people said it was because they didn't like what Obama was trying to change or because Trump said that I was going to take that he was going to take us back to a certain way of life. So he wasn't talking about issues. He was mm-hmm. talking about our system. He kept saying how our system is corrupt, and he was right. right. But he yeah. didn't mention, "Oh, and I'm corrupt too." That part. Right. <laughs> Bernie was very clear when he said the system is rigged. He was right, which is why you had a strange intersection of folks who supported Bernie in the Democratic primary, but then some of them in turn supported Trump in the Trump. general. It exactly. wasn't because their politics are any any shape similar. It's because exactly. they were making the same systems argument. So Bernie could win if he's the nominee, if he's talking systems. If Biden or whoever else becomes the nominee instead, they have to have a systems level argument if they want to beat Trump. Uh, earlier, 
earlier I was talking about how the Democratic Party is a worry party, and I'm going to tell you what my worry is, and I, I'm going to be less subtle than uh, uh, Sister Carruthers. Right my fear. <laughs> well, go ahead and tell us what you really feel like, Senator. <laughs> my, <laughs> my fear is this, is that we're going to do this. Democrats are going to do the same thing we did in 2016, nominate a mainstream, quote-unquote, electable, Wall Street-funded candidate, you know, i.e. Vice President Biden or another, and Trump, you know, the amazing thing for me from 2016 is Donald Trump was calling a Democratic candidate a uh, candidate uh, in the thrall of Wall Street. I mean, just absolutely amazing. Democratic Party, which has always been the party of the common bad, in 2016 was characterized as the party of the elites. And uh, if we nominate another Wall Street embedded mainstream candidate, uh, I'm I'm fearful of that as opposed to a systems <laughs> change candidate uh, like a Bernie Sanders. But don't you think, and, and, and I'm going to give this um, um, actually to probably to you, Rebecca, and let you follow up, Senator, but don't you think that because of the way Trump came in as a system change candidate and because he's been so corrupt and has actually changed things for the worse, that the American electorate is now wanting, they want the change, but they don't want the dramatic change that, say, uh, Elizabeth Warren or even a Bernie Sanders is talking about because it has totally disrupted them listening and watching Trump do so many things because he is literally taking our Justice Department, our foreign policy, and so many areas and has literally uh, destroyed them in, in many cases. I mean, the, the work that's going to be needed to sort of renegotiate and reestablish ourselves internationally, the work that's going to be needed to actually get people to trust in a, in a judicial system uh, of government and not feel like everything is going to be entitled to the, the person sitting in the White House, and therefore that's going to be their personal attorney, or even it's a lot of these federal agencies from, uh, from uh, energy to agriculture to all these things where they have literally gone in, kicked people off their jobs saying, we're going to move everything to, to uh, Colorado, we're going to move everything to Iowa, we're going to move everything here and there. Don't you think that the people are saying, we want some stability we want change. We want some stability in the change, similar to where if uh, if they get like if someone gets married, so they get married now they have to you know combine their uh, houses, their resources, whoever they decide to move from one place to another place, buy a new place or whatever else, they would rather go that route as in being married rather than going the route of just throwing a hand grenade in and blowing it up. Rebecca, I'll start with you. Oh, that was quite an analogy. <laughs> okay, <okay. laughs> that's the only thing I could think of off the cuff. You know, it had to be quick with it, so, so I had to use that so, one. <laughs> so, 
so so here's the thing for 2020 there's no mythical um uh on the fence can it, uh on the fence voter here that's not what you have in 2020 those aren't the voters who are showing up it's purely base voters for 2020 so if the democratic party spends all this time trying to persuade people no at this point People either like Trump as president or they dislike him as president, just bottom line. You don't have people who are threading the needle saying, oh, I need to know a little bit more about Trump before I can make a decision if I'm going <laughs> to vote for reelection for him, right? That, that's, but, but, not, but that's not what's that's going true. on here. That's true, but you still have those folks who are saying, well, I'll, the, the, the old myth of the worst, the lesser of true evils, because they're saying, well, Warren is going to do this and she's going to create all this stuff or Sanders is going to do this or Biden's going to do this or Buttigieg is going to do that. I'll stick with what I know I have in Trump and go with it. You know, they, you did not that. hear me. <laughs> Let me hear right. this again. I'm People playing dabble. Know. Come on now. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's no devil's advocate here. He's in the White House. The right. 45 in the White House, right? <laughs> so here's the thing. People know where they're at with Trump. That's not a that's not a hot that's a hot or or cold. There's no lukewarm. There's no lukewarm like, there. No lukewarm. Okay. All no. right. All right. What All right. Democrats have to do is put up a candidate <laughs> that has a track <laughs> record <laughs> to have mm-hmm. that's not a celebrity. A candidate that's actually has shown that they that they are capable in doing the work, then that candidate has to articulate a clear message on systems change, and then the Democratic Party has to pour adequate resources early and often into Black communities. That's how Democrats win this White House. It, it, it's at this point, I mean, it's no secret. It's no magic three. Here are the top three issues. Talk about those issues and people will vote. That's not where we're at for 2020. All right, Rebecca, I'm going to give that to you. I got you, sister. Go ahead, Senator. What, what, what do you think? Is it, is it a blow up or is it a, a subtle change? I think I'm, I'm going to have to agree that this is a change election. What uh, happened in 2016 after eight years of a successful president, even then African-Americans in particular, but uh, voters generally said that we have not benefited from this economy. And I believe it's still the same thing. I mean, there's been an incremental increase in wages over the last four years, but not enough for people to feel it. So I think they they lost that last week. Yeah, absolutely. So people are looking for a uh, uh, someone who will do what Trump said he would do. You know, Trump lied. He hadn't. You know, I don't think he ever had any intention of watching out for working people. But uh, so I think this is still a change. Trump didn't have any intention of winning, so he didn't have any plan for anything else. He didn't even think he was going to win, wasn't expected to win. He was just looking to build his brand. Um, Here you go. Yeah. 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 So let me ask you this. What's uh, at stake for us? mm -hmm. What's at stake for us? What's at stake for us? Uh, It's monumental. I'm in, uh, you've already said that I'm a, a former elected official. 
but I'm a history teacher, historian by training, uh, an activist by heart. But as a historian, the the consequences for uh, the country and for African Americans in particular, if Trump is elected, is monumental. I mean, uh, in so many different ways, uh, the uh, I it's almost unfathomable to me to consider that he would be reelected because of the uh, uh, you know the the consequences on the economy, uh, on you know on things like, and I do believe. The Constitution, the constitutional order, uh, uh, because what this guy is doing is uh, very similar to in I, you know until the last year I was I thought people were being a little bit overblown when they said this guy sounds like a fascist and this is a fascist kind of movement he's leading. But I at this point do believe that we're in the in the throes of a fascist movement, the consequences, uh, if he's reelected, the the uh, are uh, almost beyond imagination. Uh, for you know the it's whether we're going to have a democracy or something less than a democracy, uh, which is no democracy at all. So I, uh, these next twelve months are just going to be. Uh, Maybe on the level of the crises that we've seen, the Civil War, uh, the World War II, and the aftermath in terms of a transitional moment in our history. And for people of color, it's it's uh, even more so. And um, Rebecca, you you know you know the protocol how we do this. I, I was going to ask you what to stake as well, but the senator just said something that just I have to ask this question and, and put this out there for you guys. The idea that he could lose this election and not leave office is something that so many people have talked about, and what the senator is just saying, especially uh, uh, the idea of him. Uh, being a fascist and looking for this author uh, this authoritarian dictatorship that he wants to have, and why he's so keen to these strong men across the across the globe. How does our constitution deal with that? But how do we as American people deal with that? That that we this guy could literally lose popular and electoral college vote and decide it was rigged and I'm not leaving office. And there's literally nothing in our constitution that says how we deal with that. What do we do? What will America do if that happens? I'm very concerned that when he loses, that he'll refuse to give up power. Um, that's something that I think about, and even on a personal level, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., you know, inside the city, you know, not too far from the U.S. Capitol. So I'm even thinking about my personal safety. You know, right. do I actually physically want to be in the city on election night or do I need to make plans to be elsewhere? You know, those are like real and legitimate concerns. And I'm not the only one who has those concerns. And to the Sanders point, I heard people screaming on November 9th, oh, this is fascism. And I, too, was like, eh, let's let's not quite go that far. 
but I wasn't in the Van Jones camp of, oh, give this guy a chance. Because <laughs> I knew. Right. I, 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 right now, I, I've never knew, been in that camp. knew who he yeah. was. Yeah. I but, mean, I knew who he was throughout the campaign. I never was in that camp. <laughs> right. But I wasn't um, immediate in putting the label of fascist on him. But what I'm concerned, I mean, yeah, for the short term, I'm concerned whether or not there'll be a peaceful transfer of power. And if there isn't, what does that look like? Um, I, I think that's bad for our democracy. And then that gets us back into that foundational bucket of where we're going to have to make some, we're going to have to enact and create some foundational changes with how we do the business of democracy in this country because of Trump. And, you know, that saddens me. My other concern, specifically with foreign policy, is what another four years of this administration will look like for sub-Saharan um, Africa. I'm concerned what's going on economically with China moving in and taking over a large swath yes. of sub-Saharan yes. Africa. They, I'm they, concerned they... about the Berlin Treaty and its impacts on modern sub-Saharan Africa and the, the growth payments that countries are still paying to um, to their former colonizers. Like, who mm-hmm. colonizes a country and then basically blackmails them to become uncolonized and say, you know, into perpetuity, you're going to have to pay me billions of dollars a year. And then those same yeah. countries like France then turn back to those former colonized African nations and say, why are you so poor? You know, so my concern right. is that without the United States, acting as a check on those issues is that uh, something in Africa is going to be further exploited. And, you know, that's where my international policy concern is. My concern with black folks in America is that we're falling further behind. When we look in Boston and we see the average wealth of a black family in Boston is $8 versus a white family, I think it's – over $100,000, that frightens me because I see that chasm like growing even further stark because of this administration. It, it really is. I mean, that it's it, it's just crazy to me. And then I think, I think about the courts and the judges and things of that nature and how you got literally folks sitting on the bench that have never been in a courtroom don't even know what jurisprudence means or habeas corpus or anything of that nature. And they're on the federal bench for the rest of their life, uh, ruling on cases and sitting on appeals courts and things of that nature where they have no capacity, no ability whatsoever to even rule. And all they do is rule, um, you know, by party um, as, as it stands. Uh, Senator, uh, really quick, because I, I, uh, I, this this conversation got me so going that it, it it extended itself even longer than I expected. But what and my question to Rebecca was like, what do we do if he doesn't leave office? Because we have no no remedy for that. What is what are your thoughts about that? What how do you see well, or what do you see happening? Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna have to step off in a minute. Uh, uh, but this has been a great conversation, and I appreciate you bringing us together, Kelly. But. Uh, <laughs> You know, we uh, have had people who are loyalists uh, in the co- to the Constitution uh, when Nixon was in the White House. Uh, 
Uh, he was watched very closely during those last weeks of his administration before he resigned. And uh, I hope that leadership in Washington, uh, because I have not contemplated this but so much, but I, I, it is my hope that leaders in Washington, in Congress, and uh, in the bureaucracy have contemplated this and have made uh, contingency plans uh, on this. Uh, You know, and I apologize, I can't, you know, be any more specific, but we've never been in a constitutional crisis where, because what you know what you're talking about, Kelly, what we're talking about here is a coup d'etat. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, and it's just amazing that we in the United States of America United States said, of America. "Oh, shoot, right. they might." Uh, Trump, it is, you know, because if you read the kind of right-wing, national, white nationalist uh, chat rooms and whatnot, and they're threatening, you know, a uprising. Even right. This is exactly it. this is exactly you know. what they're looking for and what they're preparing for because they're going to feel think and say because like say all the right wing channels are saying we're not giving up the power we're not giving it up and the irony of it is is that those who are wanting to do the most damage are the poorest of the mongers and they are sitting there fighting for something that they don't even they, they can't even benefit from in terms of the taxes the jobs or anything else it's just crazy to me it's absolutely ridiculous yeah. Rebecca final word Maybe. what's what's at stake for us what's at stake for us Rebecca. Like I said, um, domestically what's at stake is um, the wealth gap in black America because if we don't if we're not able to access uh, capital then we can't build businesses. We can't build up our communities. We're gonna be um, um basically um waiting for other people outside of our community to quote unquote come in and help us. And at some point we have to be the ones we have to be our own saviors and build our own community. And then my point earlier, I'm concerned with you know, internationally with what's happening what's happening with um with um black folks um on the continent. Right. I'm I'm with you with Africa and it's something that just just kills me in the fact that so many folks uh that China is really infiltrated Africa. They are now putting their uh, their citizens uh, or, or their uh, Chinese members in power in Africa, and they're marrying into Africa, and now they're being rulers elected to office and changing their whole system of government to suit that of China, and it's just crazy to me, and all the natural resources in Africa that we, it's just it's crazy. It, it, it sickens me. It, it, it pisses me off, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff it does to me, but I'm going to just leave it right there. Senator Fort, uh, Vincent Fort, I want to thank you for joining us tonight, sir. I appreciate you taking you're the time welcome. out. Continue to do what you're doing for uh, Senator Sanders. I wish you all the best, all the luck. And as a history teacher, teacher I certainly want to get you on um, as one of our contributors and your students uh, for Black Politics Today magazine, and uh, I'm going to shoot you a copy of that. I know we talked about it before. And we've got disconnected where I haven't followed up with you. So I'm going to make sure I follow up with you this week so I can get that to you. And uh, certainly have you articulate your viewpoints and your views in the magazine for us and let everyone across the globe read about it and understand it and know exactly what's going on there in Georgia, but also what's going on with Bernie Sanders and, and the campaign and the like during 2020. So I want to so certainly much. keep 
I, I appreciate you and thank you. And Rebecca, of course, always, I want to thank you for joining us and, and coming on here and laying it down like you always do. It's always good to have you. And I always appreciate when you can take time out of your busy schedule to join us. So uh, certainly thank you. As always, I always say, and what's at stake, I always end the show, what's at stake for you and your family? America, listen to my guest tonight. You have to be a, paying attention. You have to understand exactly what's at stake for you and your family, but you have to understand what's at stake for your community. What's at stake for your legacy? What's at stake for your children and your children's children? If you don't participate in this election coming up, especially my black brothers, men, get out there and vote, participate and be a part of it. And don't get bamboozled by someone smiling and shining a a plane in your face or something like that, like Trump did in 2016. It's not for you. He's not doing it for you. He's looking for you to only exploit you to get what he wants to have and what he needs. And certainly you need to make sure the candidates you align with aligns with your values, at least on one form or another. Don't be a single issue uh, voter, get multiple issues, but you're not going to find a candidate that adheres to every issue. So take it one step at a time, get what you can from who you can and use it the best way you can. Otherwise, you're going to end up in the can, and that's all I got to say about it. So until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, we're going to have the director for the Epilepsy Foundation. November is a national epilepsy month for African Americans, or period, but we're going to be focused on African Americans, so we're going to have them on next week. So please join us, 7 p.m. Eastern. Join us, talk about epilepsy and the sudden death of epilepsy and the increase and rise in African American families and communities. So until next week, if it's social, economic, or political. It's Black Politics Today. I want to end it out with here with citizens and understanding what we have to do. Hey. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today. <laughs>